specific bris around Torah Shabalpeh. Lo karza karish baruchu brisim Yisrael ela bishvil dvarm Shabalpeh. Shenemar ki alpiha dvarm ha'ela karati et chabris ves Yisrael. Dvarm. As opposed to Ktov Lacha, the beginning of the Pasuk, that Torah which is written, So the question I want to discuss today is, what is this special bris surrounding Torah Shabbat And why now is it enacted? Why wasn't it enacted before? And what does it have to do with Purim? A little bit hold over from Purim. So let me describe two elements for why Torah Shabbat is called a bris. And, and then I'll talk a little bit, especially when I highlight the second element, <coughs> about why it was so necessary at this stage. And of course, a nice story. So everyone like, another story to add to the collection. Okay. Why is Tarash HaBalpeh called a bris in a way that Tarash HaBichsav is not called a bris? Tarash HaBichsav is fixed, rigid, and immutable. Every word of Tarash HaBichsav, at least the Chamisha Chum Shetara, was directly delivered by Kodesh Baruch Hu to Moshe. Every tag, every crown was specifically earmarked and designated. Every letter, every chaser, every yaser, every extra vav, every missing vav. Akadosh Baruch Hu delivered these are not supple or flexible texts. These are texts that Akadosh Baruch Hu wrote very carefully, told Moshe exactly how to write them. Our job is to interpret. Our job is to uncover. We're not creative in Tarashi Bechsav. We're creative because we're trying to find meanings that pe- people maybe didn't discuss or understand meanings that other people wrote about, which is why, quite frankly, a lot of people have a hard time with the way that, let's say, Tanakh is studied here, or that Tanakh is studied in Herzog, or that Tanakh is studied with the Vioni. They could say, well, okay, maybe Shmuel, maybe Malachim was written by human beings under divine inspiration. But how do you have the right to apply literary tools to a text which HaKadosh Baruch Hu directly choreographed, directly structured to Moshe Rabbeinu? The answer to that question is, well, didn't HaKadosh Baruch Hu intend it for human audience? And if he gave us literary tools, shouldn't we try to uncover the meanings that he encoded within those words through a literary device? Well, the response to that is, well, do you know better than the Ramban? The Ramban, or, uh, for hundreds of years, no one studied Tanakh this way. How can you apply literary tools to try to find meanings that a Kodesh Baruch Hu implanted within these words that people didn't study and discover before you? The answer to that could be because not every human being can discover all those seven. But there's a, there's, it's a legitimate debate. I think that the biggest problem I have with people that get very, very ideological is they don't apply intellectual honesty. <laughs> like, no other side. Just stop shooting t- arrows and then drawing the target. First realize there is, I have this all the time with boys in Hesdale. 99% of the sources in Shas say that someone who's studying Torah should not be serving in the army. That's the starting point of the conversation. The starting point of the conversation is not that we're right and they're wrong. The starting point of the conversation is, at least for most of the sources, it sounds like people that are learning Torah should not be serving in the army. Now the question is, who makes the decision? Who's, who gets the exemption? Are we considered people of the learning Torah? Is the state of Eretz all different? Is the Malachim missing? There are many, many parts of that conversation. But as if you, 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 because we're living in such polarized communities, you guys become brainwashed and you believe that there's only one way to cut the apple and only one way to discuss the ideology. And there are many, many different ways. So this question, should we be studying at least Chamisha Chom Shaitara, the way it's studied here? Don't say my question. I study it that way also, but don't think that there aren't two sides of the equation. And the question stems from the fact that this is a rigid, immutable text delivered by a Kodesh Baruch Hu, to the point that until about 2,000 years ago, roughly, you were not allowed to read a Pasuk from the Torah without reading it from a Torah scroll. Everyone knows the reverse part of the halacha. You're not allowed to write Torah Shabbat. You're not allowed to 
didn't write down the Torah that's supposed to be Baal Peh until Rabbi Danasi made that shift again around 1800 years ago. But just like Torah Shib Baal Peh can't be written down, Torah Shib Echsav is not allowed to be recited Baal Peh. You have to read it because you are tethered to a Torah that's written with the halachas of Kedusha, and you have to read it out of the Parsha, and you can't say a Pasuk in half called Psuke de la Paschi Moshe, Anan lo Paschinan. If you ever want to know, a Talmud of Rabbi Salavechik, Talmud of Rabbi Salavechik, a very makbid on this, not to say half a Pasuk, anytime you say the Shem Hashem, even if it's not in the context of studying Torah. So if you come to my house, you hear my Kiddush, I don't start with Yom HaShishi, I start with Vayar, Vayvoka, Vayar, Lakim, it's called Shoah 7, 8, 12, Vayar, Vayvoka, Yom HaShishi. Even though I am saying a Kaddish Baruch's name, the minute is not to say a half a Pasuk. Or for example, if you're in Shul, and you see a daughter, in the Chitzis, in the Ezus Nashim, like I trained my daughters not to say "Bezos Hatara Hashem Moshe Levnei Yisrael Al Pi Hashem Biad Moshe." Ki Al Pi Hashem Biad Moshe is a half a pasuk. Al Pi Hashem Yachnu, Al Pi Hashem Yisrael, Al Pi Hashem Biad Moshe. So "Bezos Hatara Hashem Moshe Levnei Yisrael" that's a pasuk, and they stop there. The salvation minute was to stop there, not to say half a pasuk. I'm just quoting these halachas to you to demonstrate how Torah Shemachzav is not freewheeling and freestyling and say what you want and whatever interpretation you want. If you remember. I quoted the Ramban last week that for the Megillah you're allowed to, because the Megillah is called an Igeris, and part of its Igerisness is you don't have to be so mocked. When you're reading Torah Shabbat, you're literally reading the words of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and those words have fixed sanctity, fixed meaning. How you define that fixed meaning, some will say you have to stick to Divrei Chazal, some will say that no, you can apply literary devices, right? And, and someone who, let's say, would be opposed to the learning and the analysis that's conducted here, would say that you think that you understand the text, but there's no way you can understand the text because it's written in divine code. So applying the tools you learn from Shakespeare or from reading articles, it's reminiscent, let's say, of the discussion that took place between the Malbim, who was one of the arch anti-Maskilim, and the Maskilim who said, why can't you use simple reading tools to understand the Torah and not necessarily interpret it based on Chazal? That was the, was, the, uh, was the claim to, uh, the, you know, to the Malbim. And the Malbim said, you think you understand basic Hebrew. You don't understand basic Hebrew because Torah is not written in basic Hebrew. Torah is written in divine Hebrew, and it's a code. So it's not just that you're trying to be literary and I'm not literary because I'm following the drush of Chazal. That's what I would have said to the Muslim. I would have said, look, okay, those are extra levels. Chazal have their drushes. You want to provide extra levels, they can enhance the text. He said those extra levels are fraudulent because Torah is not written in Hebrew. Torah is written in... Hashem speak in Hashem language. And the code for that is what Chazal give us. And any veering away from Chazal's thresholds is off the is off the mark, even literarily. We're not discussing that now. I'm just trying to frame what Torah Shibhsav is. So Torah Shibhsav is not a bilateral experience. Torah Shibhsav is a Kodesh Baruch who wrote these letters, told Moshe to write these letters. The best we can do is to uncover the meaning that Hashem implanted within those words. And there's a debate about how you choose and what tools you use to uncover that meaning. Torah Shabbat has a whole different story, a whole different operation. And a lot of people don't understand this. And Machlokis in Torah Shabbat is not the product of the disintegration of Masorah. That Harsin Hashem told Moshe one thing, and for years and years everyone agreed there was a consensus. And at some point they stopped studying so hard and so aggressively, and then a Machlokis broke out. What happened in Harsinah? And Harsinah Hashem told Moshe, you see this? This is Tameh. And there are 70 different ways, 70 diff- different flow charts to arrive at that conclusion. You know what else? It's also Tahar. And there's 70 different ways to arrive at that conclusion. And what I just said seems like an oxymoron. Something can't be Tameh and Tahar at the same time. 
it's an oxymoron for people that have limited binary processes, like everyone in this room. So for us, it's either day or night. It can't be both. But for Hashem, what do we say every morning? Yotzer or, Mavari Choshech, Oseh Shalom, Mavari So Hashem's processor is in binary. For Hashem, it's all true. We're limited because we just think in finite, exclusive terms. Day, night, yes, no, on, off, zero, one. So we can't process. But in a Kaddish Baruch Hu's mind, they can all be... There was a Dutch uh, uh, physicist in the 19th century, called, 20th century, called Niels Bohr. He said the opposite of a true statement is a false statement. The opposite of a profound statement is another profound statement. So Hashem doesn't deal in true and false. We deal in true and false. Hashem deals in profundities, and everything could be true. So every single idea that you draw from the system is true, even if they seem to contradict. And for thousands of years, they were able to see how these seemingly anti, antithetical, dichotomous ideas could be merged into one. So there's no machlokas can say, oh, you say tar, you say tamay. We see the common logic between them that can lead to your saying tamay and your saying tar, so there's no machlokas. And because each position was validated, so some people kept the halacha that it's tamay, some people kept the halacha that it's tar, and everyone pretty much agreed with halachic pluralism, because every different position, even though they seem dichotomous, was stemmed from a similar logic. And at a certain point, they lost their ability to see two profundities as integrated to one idea. And then Hill and Chama started to argue about what we should apply, and that ours should be applied and not yours, and yours should be practiced and not ours. So it's not as if there was one truth given to our Sinai. Because there's not one truth given to our Sinai, it's much more, not vulnerable, but it's much more inviting and compatible with human creativity. Hashem wanted humans to create different ideas. And to grasp, not everyone, and not, no one person can grasp the totality of Torah Shemalpeh. There's just too many, too many permutations. I get to a sugya, and I'll show the boys in yeshiva. There are at least 25 permutations before we even start cracking the rishonim, and my mind is exploding. So I say, you know, what, let's just deal with seven of them. Let's just deal with five of them, because I don't have a mind that's capable of containing all those permutations. My mind is limited. I can't fully encompass. So Hashem counted on the fact that different people will come up with different permutations, and for thousands of years they were able to say, look, these are all legitimate, we can find a common unifying logic. And at a certain point, they lost the ability to find the unifying logic. And then they splintered into differences. This is true, this is not true. And they argued about them. But in Harsina, Hashem introduced all these multiple truths. Now, a fascinating question in Harsina, I'm just giving you some background, is there's a matter that says that Hashem gave Moshe every single idea. Every Gemara, every Mishnah, every Medrash, every Halacha, and any Svara, the language of the Medrash is, that any Talmud would ever say. So that means tomorrow, if one of my sure Dalit Israeli says a Svara, Hashem told that to Moshe, it's a legitimate Svara, Hashem told that to Moshe Harsin, which is hard for us to imagine, but again, Moshe is not learning in a human experience. Moshe is learning in a cognitive experience far beyond human. It's, not, it's superhuman, it's super cognitive. So Moshe is just sitting there grabbing all these ideas that have been mushrooming and mushrooming and mushrooming for thousands of years. There's another version based on this week's parsha. Let's read the parsha. The first pasuk that Hashem gave Moshe the Torah. Chazal interpret the word that Hashem gave Moshe the klalim, the principles, not every single detail. Which means that Hashem didn't give him every single svara that my Talmud will say tomorrow. Hashem gave him the ground rules and any svara that adheres to those ground rules is legitimate. Now those ground rules, let's say we make a game, okay? Let's say we say, this is the game we're making. These are the ten rules. These are the goalposts, these are the sidelines, these are the timing, these are the rules. And then any play you draw up within those ground rules is legal. And you can play within those ground rules. Hashem gave Moshe the ground rules. He didn't give him ten, he gave him ten million. But from those ten million, we can create a hundred billion ideas from those ten million. So did Hashem give Moshe a hundred billion ideas? Or did Hashem give Moshe ten million ground rules? 
within which 100 billion ideas can be developed. The point is, and this is the first reason that Torah Shabbat Peh is called a bris, that unlike Torah Shabbat which is unilateral, which is rigid, which is immutable, which human beings don't have a creative role, we have an interpretive role, Torah Shabbat is a marriage of the human imagination to the divine code. There's a good quote. A marriage of the human imagination to the divine code. Hashem wants us to develop Torah Shabbat We're equal partners. Every bris is not unilateral, but bilateral. Two people working in unison. Two sides working in unison. So Hashem, Hashem delivered Torah Shabbat to us as a bris. Because he wants us to develop. Now, the, how are we developing ideas that were said to Moshe? Idea by idea, 100 billion nuggets of information. Are we actually creating ideas in the system? Hasidos believe that we can create ideas to the system. That's why they're much more flexible and creative in developing even Torah Shabbat Anti-Hasidim were a little bit more muted and conservative. These are just the parameters, and within those parameters, there's a lot of debate. But seen large and seen whole, Torah Shabbat has a very different experience than Torah Shabbat Torah Shabbat is interpretive. There's great creativity interpretation. Torah Shabbat is creative. We create the system. The Beis Yosef, the Mechaber, writes a bracha that every one of us in this room says every day, even people who are part of from Talmud Torah, Asher bachar banu mikol amin, v'nasan lanu astarazel, v'rochat Hashem l'seinat Torah. And what's the, sec- what's the second bracha? Asher nasan lanu taras emes, v'chaye olam nata betochenu. The Mechaber says, what's the difference between natan lanu tarat emet and chaye olam nata betochenu? The first part of the bracha refers to Torah shebechtav. It's Torah Emet. It's the ultimate truth of Hashem. Human beings can't provide ultimate truth. That's Torah Shebechtav. It's the ultimate truth. And that he gave us. The second part of the bracha is Torah Shebaal It's not called Torah Emet because it's human forms, but that he planted in us. When you plant something in the ground, you expect it to grow. So Hashem doesn't expect Torah Shebechtav to grow. Hashem created a fixed set of truths about Torah Shebechtav our goal is to try to uncover them. And someone in this yeshiva, in this institution, would say that, let's say, Rav Medan is uncovering some of those truths that weren't uncovered before, and opponents would say, you don't have the right to uncover those truths. If they haven't been uncovered by the Ramban, you don't have the right to uncover them. But everyone agrees that we're in the process of recovering truths. Whereas in Torah Shabbat, it's v'chaye olam nata b'tochenu. Hashem put the system into our hearts, and now I'm trying to develop it. I'm trying to come up with new meaning. It's creativity. Okay, there's a fascinating... Anyone into uh, literary criticism? Anyone ever read uh, famous novels? There's a whole genre called literary critics, where great people wrote criticisms. Not, not criticize your bad, your ugly. Criticism, assessments of other great authors. So one of the most influential books on literary criticism written in the 20th century was written by a Jew named M.H. Abrams, very interesting literary critic. And he talked about the difference between the tradition of art and literature until the Romantics, Wordsworth and Milton and people of that nature, and afterwards. And his point was that art was always seen as mimetic. What does mimetic mean? You have to describe nature. So an artist would paint that, those clouds or that panorama. And an author would write literature that would chronicle or document human experiences, stories, interactions, war stories. And then the romantic said, it's not our job just to reflect or recreate reality in art and in literature and in music, but to create new reality. So let's say Keats would talk about the emotions of that tree. That tree doesn't have emotions. He's taking his emotions and planting them onto the tree. So in order to capture the difference between classic art 
and romantic art, and I think about this title was such a great title, he called it The Mirror and the Lamp. And he felt that classic art saw themselves as mirrors, whereas romantic art saw themselves as lamps, trying to create light rather than reflect light. So my phrase, someone once asked me, what's the difference between poetry and philosophy and history? So I once told history documents reality, philosophy analyzes reality, poetry creates reality. So a romantic poet tries to create new meaning rather than documenting or analyzing the meaning of the life we live in. So Torah Shabbat is creative, trying to create a new approach to the sugya. And as long as that new creation adheres to, this, to the rules of the sugya, and that's why there's such a copious amount of Torah written about Torah Shabbat Because even if you move the needle one degree, you're shifting the whole system, because every part of Shas is interconnected. So if I change one iota, of the sugya I'm learning right now, the whole system shifts, all the goalposts shift, and this whole, you can imagine this huge, huge system moving over by one degree. I, I actually, I'm reading this, sometimes when I get bored, so I read these, you know, there's a lot of people that are writing Chidushim on the Sechimah. This is a great sefer called Chidushim Ubi'urim. It was written by someone named Rav Greinemann and B'nai Brak. This is probably one of the most sophisticated svarim written in the last 20, 30 years on Shas. Like when I really, really know a sugya, this is like my final obstacle course. Can I make it through this Evokoch edition of Biram? I was looking at it before, I didn't have time, so I snapped a picture. And I asked Bracha just to print it for me, so she printed 30 copies. <laughs> so if anyone wants the Chedishim or Biram, you're welcome to take one. But it's tough sledding. I mean, this is <laughs> tough sledding for me. I have to read it four or five times just till I make it through. And I've learned the sugya a half a dozen times. So, you know, good luck with it. But <laughs> you want a little homework tonight. But when you read some of these works, you literally see how they're slightly, slightly changing the articulation, changing the word, but a slight shift, and the entire plate moves. And you see the entire system moving over. And you just feel like every, every shift you make, and the shifts are not just arbitrary, the shifts, oh, I found this tosis I can't understand. How did that tosis understand the sugya? Let me move the whole system over by an inch, just so I can understand how tosis came to that conclusion. So it's an entirely different experience, and that's what the Gemara Gita number one is referring to. Lo karas hakadosh baruch hu brisim Yisrael. Torah is impositional, unilateral, one-sided. Torah is much more bilateral. It's a synthesis between the human mind and a kadosh baruch system. Yes, sorry. I don't know how to ask this question, but what's the ideal that we don't have bottom line halakha? Absolutely. No, bottom line is already a phrase. But the ideal is that halacha should be the product of each person, not each person, each authoritative posseg, learning through the sugya, coming to their personal conclusion, following that halacha, and applying that halacha for their constituents, their community members. Shekharach was written in the 16th century, in response, did they never talk about this with you? Okay, so it's a great question. What were the two historical events? Okay, let me take two steps back. The Beis Yosef, the Yosef Cairo, in the 16th century, decide he's going to systematize halacha. He's going to create a system for halachic resolution. What was his system? Anyone know? He took a panel of the, of the top the three greatest rabbis of the last 500 years who were? No, two and a half. The Rif, the Rif, the Rambam, and the Rush. Now, the Rush. Yeah, so talk right, correct. So talk about a little bit, correct. And he said that when there's a unanimity, that's going to be the Psak. When it's a Machlokas, it'll be a two to one majority. So he's creating a system to reach Psak halacha in almost any circuit. And now one of the greatest opponents of the Beis Yosef, which then became the Shekhar, Beis Yosef is meant to be the Sefer to contain it all, but by the end of his life he realized that Sefer was too hard for most people, so he wrote the Cliff Notes. And the Cliff Notes are called Shekhar. But the concept of Shekhar, everything is organized and systematized and clear and arranged. One of the great opponents 
of the Beis Yosef slash Shulchan Aruch slash of Yosef Cairo was Rabbeinu uh, Shlomo Luria, who lived in Lublin. In fact, his kever is one of the oldest kevaros. Anyone, are you guys going to Poland? Yeah. So you'll probably see the kever in Lublin. Okay, mm-hmm. Shlomo Luria, he wrote the Marshal and the Yamshel Shlomo, and he had two basic arguments in the Shulchan Aruch. What, well, before I talk about the arguments, what compelled Rabbi Yosef Cairo to systematize halacha? There were two events in the 15th century that destabilized halacha. What were they? Well, what's the obvious? 15th century, Spanish Inquisition. So Jews are now migrating across Europe, bringing Spanish customs. And Spanish customs, these were people who were well-educated. They had great rabbanim. They were wealthy. They were very influential. Just imagine you waking up in a small little, you know, fashtunk in a little shul in Germany one morning, and all of a sudden you got 500 Spanish guys davening, and they're all coming with the Ramban's Masora and the Ramban's Masora, and they start making fun of the way you make Havdalah and the way you read Parsha Zahar and the way you do a Seder. So, what are you crazy? We got the Ramban, the Ritva, the Rajbra, the Ran, the Ritman. You feel like, oh, maybe I should start keeping those Menhagen. Right? When we talk about Svardim today, and we refer to them as Jews in Arabic lands, they weren't Svardim. They were Jews who lived in Arabic lands. <laughs> They became Svartim when all the Spaniards moved over and converted them to Menhage Svart. We call them Svartim because they keep the original Menhage Svart, because their traditions were not to be strong enough to withstand the Spanish invasion of Jews. Jews were coming, and they Jews basically followed three routes. They followed a European route, which took them through France, Germany, Poland. Remember, this is 1492. Poland is not yet on the scene. Poland reaches its heyday, starts to reach its heyday in the 16th century, but Spanish Inquisition fuels it. Remember, a lot of the Spanish Jews who went through Europe they ended up in Holland. Right? Once they finished with Portugal, they ended up in Holland. Spanish-Portuguese synagogues, so they, they end up in Holland, very wealthy Jews, because Holland's a very wealthy place because of the trade, because of the waterways. The second route Jews take us through the Balkans, Italy, Greece, the Turkey, Israel, Egypt, Rambam, that whole area. And then the other route is they go south to North Africa, Tunisia, Mitzrayim, Egypt, and then to Yemen, and to some of the other, what we call Svartic lands. But obviously, they weren't Svartic until the Svartic Jews came and Sparticized them to the Spanish Jews, and we just use the word Svartic. Right? 90% of the people in this room are Svartic. I'm Svartic. I became Ashkenazi because my Sephardic ancestors probably, I don't know where the name Tarragon comes from, there are all sorts of traditions, and we have about 400 years of Lithuanian ancestry, whatever, white Russia. But there's a port city in Spain called Tarragona. So the likelihood that we came from Spain is really high, especially when I was the first person in my family to come to Israel after hearing all this beautiful stories how we come from Lithuania, we're an old Lithuanian family. And then I see like, and, and every Tarragon and Chutzarts is all related, we know each other, all one family. And all of a sudden I open up the phone book, like a thousand Sephardic Tarragons running around. It's like, we're probably Sephardi. And those are probably a long lost relatives, and they went to Morocco, and we went to White Russia or something, and we think we're such big Ashkenazi, whatever. So, you know, we're, we're, we're probably all Spartan in this room. So, all of a sudden, you have a destabilizing of halacha. Beforehand, this, the Jewish diaspora was strong enough to support different halachas in different cities. So, if you lived in France, you can live 20 miles apart, you follow halacha differently. Not made you, you didn't eat meat and milk, and she ate, and like you, you violated basic differences. But you made Kiddush differently, you made Havdalah differently, you kept Pesach differently, you kept Nida differently, just slight differences. But, but probably less movement, like in general, less Right, but now there's a lot of movement. Exactly. The second issue, before I continue, which really destabilized Halacha, which isn't a Jewish event, but it's a major event, is 15th century. Mm-hmm. Printing press, very good. Before the printing press, it was extremely, extremely expensive to print Torah articles or Torah material, which means you need a great subsidy. 
which means it was quality control, because rich people would only give money to rights of armor people who are of quality. You have to prove yourself. Now there's a printing press, every Tom, Dick, and Harry can print this tradition. So you're walking into Shul, this tradition, Rashba, Rashi, nice little Tosvos. Uh-huh, interesting safer. It's called a Minchas Pinchas. I don't know. Looks like a good safer. So it's called inflation. Inflation, there are more works available. What happens whenever there's inflation? Devaluation. You don't know what's of value, what's of not. So it's like this very chaotic world where a lack of pluralism just can't be sustained anymore. So the Yosef Kara says, we got to systematize, we got to stabilize. But for the first 100, 150 years, there's a live debate. Someone like the Yamsha Shlomo is opposed to the Yosef Kara on two fronts. A, because he thinks the panel is too Sephardic, because the Riff and the Rambam are Sephardic, and the Rush is half Sephardic. The Rush grew up in France, Talmud of the Marami Rettenberg, but was embroiled in the same uh, program or accusa- false accusations that, in, that imprisoned the Marami Rettenberg. And at a certain point, he had to run to Spain for his life, or else he'd be killed in France. But he gets to Spain, he said, oh, wow, look who this guy. He said, the Gadol Ador just moved to Spain. So this is in the 14th century, before the Spanish Inquisition, and he ends his life being a Spaniard, being a Sephardi. So the Yom Shashon was living in Lublin in the 1520s, doesn't want so much of halacha to be shaded towards Sephardic halacha. But his more fundamental disagreement is, I don't think that we should collapse halacha into something which is so small and narrow and systematized and shulchan It should be wild. Every rab should sit there, go through this, not you and me, but go through the surya, spend 15 hours and say, this is where the surya leads me. And there was a live debate. Shulchan won, because I'm so apostolic with shulchan But I remember a couple of years ago when um, this whole controversy broke out with um, the, the woman, the girl was putting on tefillin in, in Nesayal or something. Right? So what was really at stake there I'm not going to get into the politics of it. Into the, what was really at stake was that if, if a woman were to put on tefillin in 1300 or 1200 or 800, as we have records of women putting on tefillin, that's pre Shokhanach. And there are shitos and Mishalom that can justify the reading into it. Because it's a mission. The real issue, just in case, I'm sure you know about it, but just in case you don't, we posken that women are allowed to perform any single mitzvah cessation as man grama. And there's a machlokas between Ashkenazi poskim and Sephardic poskim. According to Ashkenazi poskim, you can even make a bracha. Ashkenazi poskim say you shouldn't make a bracha on mitzvah say shazman grama because you're not chayav. It's a question about brachas. Can you say asher kiddushah Why is tefillin the only mitzvah that women are not encouraged to keep, even though you can keep every other mitzvah? They should keep every other mitzvah if they can. The answer is because part of the mitzvah of tefillin it requires a guf naki. You have to have machshavas nakios. You shouldn't let your mind wander. It requires a guf naki. Which is why it's very, very important when I'm wearing film. You know, if a person, let's say, has diarrhea, you shouldn't put on film. Your mom is it's us to put on film. They have diarrhea if you can't control your bowel movements. Or that's why all the mitzvahs were mechanech children at a very early age. Tzitzes and lulav and sukkah and megillah. When it comes to tefillin, because it's very hard to keep a gufnaki, we wait like till the last minute. A week or two before, a month or two before, you know, try putting on your tefillin. Because it's really important to be a gufnaki. And if not, you're a mevaz of the tefillin because the tefillin is a minusayat Torah. Now, I'm a man. I don't have a choice. I'm chayiv, so I have to run the risk every morning of taking a chance not to keep a guf naki because I have to fulfill my mitzvah. But with women, there are two factors. Number one is if you're potter, why take the chance? Like, there's nothing wrong with putting one scissors. There's nothing wrong with taking a look. Scissors has got loop with tefillin. You're not taking a look of sucking anything else. But because tefillin requires a guf naki and you're not chayiv, so why take the risk when you're not chayiv anyway? And the second issue is, okay, so women have an even harder time keeping a guf naki because there are certain physical reactions that you can't control. 
So that's where, when we show them talk about why the men are developed for women, not to wear tefillin, it's because tefillin requires grifnaki. I'm chayef, i got to try my best. You're potter, and in addition, your challenge of grifnaki, Baruch Hashem, it's a good thing, is different than my challenge for grifnaki. When, so, when you go to make them, men don't need to. Because of? So, after midday, you go to make them. Okay, but, correct. But the understanding is, even if you're not in the need of time, you don't know what's going to happen. Something may happen that's irregular at a regular time. I'm not going to ever have that issue. I'm not going to have to worry about that issue. So therefore, that's why my mimics are put on filling. But you can still see throughout Rishonim, in the, in the days of the Rishonim, in the days of the Gemara, this one put on filling, this one put on filling. So if you're living in the year 800, and your rabbi tells you, you know, I put on filling, because I sense that you know, you're a serious woman, and you know, you'll be very, very careful, and if you feel need to come in, you'll be you know, extremely cautious. But what happens is, in the 16th century, the Shulchan Aruch clocks in, that women don't put on tefillin. And when the Shulchan Aruch clocks in, and once Am Yisrael accepts Shulchan Aruch, that becomes the platform for all halachic decisive. Now we can de- debate what the Shulchan Aruch meant in certain halachos, and when electricity comes, no one knows what the Shulchan Aruch would have said, but putting on tefillin in 2010, putting on tefillin is basically circumventing the Shulchan I'm not talking about the feminism, why she did it, I'm just talking about any... There's a difference between taking a personal position in the year 1200 or 800 or 700, whether you're a man, a woman, a dog, a cat, whatever, because halacha hasn't been systematized. Once it's 2000, halacha has been systematized. And therefore, your halachic behavior has to flow at some level from the Shulchan Aruch. And when the Shulchan Aruch says, the minute is women don't put on tefillin, that's jumping around the Shulchan Aruch. And the dangers of that are far beyond you know, women tefillin or not. The dangers of that are the whole system's going to fall apart. So the same thing with a man. Rav Aaron jumped around the Shulchan Aruch, l'chumra, never l'kula. So Rav Aaron would say, oh, the Shulchan Aruch says, you don't have to do this, but I found the Rishon that says, you have to be machmer. So to be machmer beyond the Shulchan Aruch is one thing, but to be nekel against the Shulchan Aruch is another thing. So Rav Aaron would typically hold shitas Rishonim, but never l'kula, always l'chumra. So that's in terms of the Yam Shalom and Shechanach. I'm sorry, I didn't. Our rabbi told us, I mean, actually, from two different rabbis, two different houses, said that the Shulchanach and the Beit said weren't dafkas of Like, it wasn't, his clear intention wasn't to be posek halacha for everyone. It was just to make a leket of parachot. So, the coming out of the Kedatanachada, we have to do everything the Shulchanach said is not dafka correct. Right. Um, like, it might not have been his. It might, his goal might not have been to make everyone do this in halacha. It was just so contacting his three Sephardi rabbis, or even right. two to one, just shows that he wasn't trying right. to be all like, oh, everyone do this. So I can't answer the historical question. I'm not enough of an academic. I don't know what his intention was. The Masar is that his intention was, and he called it Beit Yosef, Shapicha, you can't follow me. But even if, either way, whether his intention was or wasn't, it only becomes authoritative when Ami Sol accepts it. So even if he intended it to be the final psaq, if Ami would never have accepted it, it wouldn't be authoritative, and vice versa. Even if accidentally he didn't intend it as a psaq, once Ami accepts it, so that's irrelevant to practice. I can answer it as a rav, not as a star. And I don't know what he was thinking when he wrote it, but practice-wise, once Ami and what was that tipping point, I can't tell you, but once our svarim, once our nexus of poskim are always citing the Shulchan Aruch and succumbing and submitting and basking in the Shulchan Aruch, it becomes authoritative. And circumventing that is anti, anti-Shulchan Aruch. And mo- most would call that... Most would, most would call that questionably orthodox behavior. <laughs> and I would be amongst them. <laughs> I would be amongst them. Again, I'm, I'm trying to be intellectually honest. I, I can't tell you what his intentions were. But I can tell you it doesn't make a difference. 
because the halachic authority doesn't draw from the person's intentions, it draws from Amisol's consensus of opinion. Now, if, let's say tomorrow all of Amisol, not you and me, but all major posts, we're going to have to say, you know what, we muffed it, and, and everyone who's written over the last four better than the Chassam Sofer, and Bikiv Eger, and the Pnei Ashur, and the Pesachet Tshuva, and the Nod of Yudah, who all thought the Shulchan Aruch was the deciding factor. I don't know, maybe we could change it, but that would be, that'd be a different story. Yes, a lot of interesting questions. We didn't get to the real issue today, yes. Sorry, wait, but then there was, like, we have the idea of rabbis. So there was an idea, there was some sort of a trying to, like, let's say, a person of Tzmarin is Tanar Tzach, not, like, you don't go, like, you go with the rabbis, and what, what did they say, that it's when the rabbi, when we go through the rabbis, we're saying we're all going after the rabbis. You know? Right, right. But but the rabbis were very, very sectorialized, and basically, okay, they were, we followed all the rabbis in a particular town of France. Got but now, not we now we would take a poll of all the rabbis so in the like, entire world. I say the like harav is like find yourself around and then right, right. do the halacha. Right. And also, like even in the in the klali psak of shas. Sometimes we have a lacha, we pass it like we'd be a kiva, even when it's the yachid rabbin, we pass it like we'd be a nasi, even when it's the yachid rabbin. So once you have these looming and towering figures, like the Rebbeinu Tam was the postdoc of 13th century France, everyone, probably the whole world, listened to what Rebbeinu Tam said. So it, it, it is a fascinating thing that halacha is not halacha by numbers, how you build the chains of authority. It's how people respond. Like, who made Ravaggio save such an important halachic voice? We did, because... I'm, after so many Sakim and Shalot that came up, I think that's Christopher that's what he's talking about. So that means Poskim are less likely to disagree with someone who's consistently proven themselves to be. What made Ramosha Feinstein so authoritative in America? Because his Psakim was just very, very accepted. And other people's Psaks were less so, and therefore they became less traditional, less conventional. Let's hurry up because we haven't started this year yet. Yes? Why is the only reason pure practicality that we move from this kind of Seemingly more authentic system to a very rigid one. Just practice. No, those aren't those aren't antonyms. Authentic and rigid are not antonyms. It just seems pluralistic and rigid are antonyms. It's different forms of authenticity. Okay, we're in a stage of. So from the pluralistic to rigid, right. was it just pure practicality? Yeah, because we suffered an exile that just couldn't embrace halachic pluralism, and therefore we have to be much more consistent. Halacha, which I'll talk about in a moment, because we'll see it in the second shot. Okay, let's get let's get to the second shot. Okay. Okay, since everyone's uh, wandering a little bit, let me start with the story. Okay, this is the pre-COVID-19 epidemic, fake epidemic. Little did they know that a real epidemic was on the way. This was in like 2005, maybe, 2006. You can wiki, you can Google it later. There was a swine flu scare. You're all too young to remember it, but people were terrified of the swine flu. Long, right? 15 years ago, 16. Swine flu. No one really knew. No one was really getting terribly sick, but everyone was frightened to death. So everyone got on planes. A couple people actually had masks, but no one knew what masks were. Masks were like Halloween, Purim, maybe some doctors, no one had masks. But you get on these planes, and everyone's terrified. And like, no one looked at each other. No one like wanted to talk to each other. God forbid, if you looked at each other, maybe you'd go through the eyes or something. So it was like very, very private. So I get on a plane. I think anybody told you the story earlier this year, Hanukkah. We get on a plane to go to Toronto late Matzah Shabbos. The last flight out of New York. You know, think of New York, the small planes. It's very hard to navigate your way through the rows. You have no seat in the back. No one says a word. I'm looking at the front 
friends we see from the plane, like these two boys in baseball hats and glasses, the dead giveaways for why you guys are Jews. But you know, they're not Jews because they're wearing their, uh, their hats. <laughs> and then uh, they're not really wearing the jeans scarves. I mean, they're not Jewish, right? They're sitting, they're wearing girls on the flight. And they have their ski gear with them. Learns that it worked. The plane got terribly delayed, and we landed in Toronto, freezing cold winter Toronto, two in the morning. And those small little planes, they don't have these uh, jackets that connect to the terminal. You walk through, you get off the plane on the tarmac, and then the buses come and pick you up, or you walk up to get to one. It wasn't any of these buses. And as we got off the plane, I went over to them, and we started, uh, we took out our Blackberries, we didn't have the, we had Android or iPhones, we had our Blackberries, and we started sharing where the kosher food was, where the minyanim were, where they could get if they needed a base mattress or something. And I, I was looking at some of the other passengers on the flight, and they were looking at me in amazement, like, do you guys know each other? You didn't say a word to each other, you don't know each other's names. And I was saying to myself, if anyone would ask me that question, my answer would be, of course not. We all share one common language. It's called kosher food, it's called Shabbos, if it gets gender for Shabbos, it's called uh, minyan, it's called... And why am I saying this? The second reason the Torah Shabbal is called the bris. And the reason that it's introduced now is as follows. Before the Egel, in the beginning of Parshas Kitisa, we were on track for one historical trajectory, for one historical arc. And that arc was, and we, it's so far removed from us, we don't even remember that it was available. How long does it take to walk from Harsinai to Eretz Yisrael, ideally? Three days, 11 days, a different report. So we're on track, essentially, to receive the Torah Shavuos time, get to Israel by June 15th, wage a few wars with the locals, and by Rosh Hashanah time, inaugurate Utopia. That's pretty much, had we inaugurated Utopia, you'd all be Israeli, I'd be Israeli, there'd be no Megdalos. We'd live in Mashiach Tzai, we'd live in Mashiach period. We, we, we rerouted history because of the ego, which was the first break in history, which led to the Moroccan, which led to... Essentially, once we sin in the ego, plan B starts to materialize, like one of these Avengers movies, or the, the, the opposite of things dissolving. All of a sudden, this new arc of history starts to cobble itself together. What's that arc of history that's starting to cobble itself together? It's called Dallas. Now, the Jews are going to be Am Hashem, not by living in their land and representing Hashem through the lifestyle we live in Eretz Yisrael, but we're going to walk through this wilderness and defy a world that hates Hashem and that wants to be immoral, and we're going to make a stand and teach people that way, the way that we, history has unfolded. So essentially, in Parashat Kitisa, you're seeing the genesis of Gullus. Before Parashat Kitisa, Gullus wasn't on the table. After Parashat Kitisa, Gullus is starting to become a whole different reality. Now, how will we survive the Gullus? the great anthropological miracle of history. How did a nation go, living their life scattered across the earth, different languages, different dialects, different skin colors, different ethnicities, different general cultures, different diets. You live in Turkmenistan, I live in, you live in Turkmenistan. Sometimes you see these Russians that come, these people that come from the Soviet Union, and you have these thriving Jewish communities in the middle of nowhere. You hope it's all of these Turkestan and Turkmenistan, and, 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 and all of a sudden, we're here in Eretz Yisrael, and it's, 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 as an Israeli, it's just so invigorating to see Kibbutz Galios and see people come from all over the earth, but think not just of the state of Israel, because the state of Israel is the unifying organ, the unifying element, where for 2,000 years, how did we retain our identity? And it's not just that we retain their identity like some you know, hippie group or some sideline group, but we were attacked, we were assaulted, we were persecuted, there were active attempts to eliminate our identity 
and sometimes even murder us, and how did we survive? What was our common language? Without a common flag, without a common currency, without a common land, without a common language, what was that common language? And the answer to that common language was Torah Shabbat. Torah Shabbat in practice, you could get on a boat and travel halfway across the world and land in a country where no one spoke your language, you didn't speak their language, but you said the word mikvah, everyone knew what you're talking about. You said the word Shabbos, everyone knew what you're talking about. You said the word Nida, everyone knew what you're talking about. You said the word Chala, you said the word Matzah, Chameitz, Maror, Trillin, Tzitzis, it all made sense. And, and that's part of what linked the Jews. The two things that linked the Jews are, number one, our common halachic practice. Number two is our care and desire for each other and the fact that chesed and stuff is built into us. And everyone knows that when a Jew shows up and down, partially because Shabbos, you can't just stay for a meal, you have to stay for the entire day, but partially because, well, I'm harachim, and because it's fascinating to, to read some of the great debates that took place in the United States in the 30s and 40s. By the 30s and 40s, it became clear in the United States that they were becoming adulterated by too many immigrants. Too many immigrants were coming. These were the great, great immigrations from, from Eastern Europe. And it wasn't an anti-Jewish thing. It was just an anti-immigration thing, because they just couldn't handle that many immigrants. Of course, there were, there were elements of anti-Semitism towards it. And a lot of the Jewish leaders, primarily the Reform rabbis, the, the Orthodox were not that politically influential, they were trying to convince the administration, and what was it, Truman administration, or the Roosevelt administration, that even though there are severe limits on immigrants, um, there should be less severe limits on the Jewish immigrants. Why? Because if we take too many Irish and too many Polish and too many Germans, they'll become drug-addicted, uh, prostitute, uh, soliciting criminals. But we all know that we can take as many Jews because the Jews will take care of them. Like, the Jewish community will take care of them. Everyone has a friend, a brother, or an aunt. They're not going to be wandering the streets. They'll be taken into homes, taken into institutions, taken into orphanages. Like, we could take, was the claim, we could take as many Jews as we want because they're not going to be a burden on society. They're not going to tax the social welfare system because we all know, everyone knows, Jews take care of each other. Someone lands, you take care of them. It's, it's you know, someone that travels the world and and see so many different Jewish communities. It's just so breathtaking to see how Jewish people take care of each other. People show up, like in, in any, in any um, American city where there's a major, major hospital, like Pittsburgh or Cleveland or some of the places in Florida, it's clear to the Jews who live there that we need to buy a couple apartments and outfit them with a couple of kitchens because we're going to have Israelis or Jews coming from across the world that unfortunately are going to have to come for long-term care. And long-term care means they need a place to live. And it's our responsibility to collect money. Like, you don't, you don't have that with other cultures. You have, oh, we are the Japanese, and we have to make sure that it's just it's built into our system that we have to care for one another. If, you're, if you get a chance, read my article this week in the Jerusalem Post. I wrote about the politics of compassion. I said, you're right. In a democracy, the majority imposes its will upon the minority. And right now, the majority is the right-wing coalition. They're trying to impose their will. It's just one problem. We're not a democracy. We're not meant to be a democracy. We're a family that are rebuilding our identity, founded upon democratic principles. But it can't be that the word democracy stops the conversation. There has to be other elements to what we're trying to accomplish here. So if we are a family, the head of a family, I have a family, doesn't say, oh, I'm right, and this is what the majority of the family wants, let's just do it. You want the entire family to be united. You want people, their needs should be voiced, and their needs should be attended to. And this is not compassionate politics. This is democratic politics. We are the majority, and we're going to impose our rule. Okay, but you're doing it against the will of 49.9% of the population, and that's not the way I envision the political system we're trying to create. So we are a family. Now we are finally at the final stage of building a family. 
So the reason that Torah Shabbat is called the bris, and the reason that it's introduced now, listen carefully, this is a very, very um, abstract concept. Before the Egel, meaning before Golis, there was no need for Torah Shabbat as a separate language to unify Jews, even though they're scattered across the earth. The concept of Torah Shabbat is born after the Egel. Now get ready. The Beis Halevi, who was the original Yosef Dov Halevi Soloveitchik, Rabbi Soloveitchik's great-grandfather, quotes the Gemara that says, the first Luchos, the text was supernatural. Beneis Hayuomdim. Now most people interpret that to mean that since the original alphabet was not Ksav Ashuri, but had certain letters, that if you etch them into the Luchos on both sides, you won't see them anymore. So you try to make a Samach and you carve the Samach on both sides of the Luchos, which the Luchos has Mizeh, Mizeh, and Ksuvim, you won't have a Samach, you'll have a hole, because the hole of the donut will fall out. And a Samach's like a donut, right? If you carve a Samach on both sides, the middle stone will fall out. Or a Mem, Sophie, the middle will fall out. So B'nai Sayomda means even though the Tav should have disintegrated, it was held there supernaturally. Or other ways to describe it supernaturally. The base Yosef. The Rav's great-grandfather said, you know what it means that the text of the first Luchos was supernatural? Get ready for something you can't understand, and I can't understand, that normally means it's true, because it's beyond human comprehension, because it refers to Hashem's Torah. Look at me for a visual. You could look at the Luchos and automatically see all of Torah Shabbat. Somehow, those letters on the Luchos were portals and codes, well, namely, there was no Torah Because all of Torah was anchored to text. There weren't two bodies to Torah. This two-body division of Torah was not a first Luchos phenomenon. Why? Because at the first Luchos, there was no Golos. If there's no Golos, there's no need for Torah to unite us. Now they worship the Ego. Moshe shatters the first Luchos. Now we're about to go into Golas at some point, and Hashem says, I'm going to take these two parts of Torah and split them. Now listen to the split. One part of Torah, Torah Shibachsav, oh, that's international morality, religion, theology, history, and that, you know what? Won't be the worst thing if non Jews study that. Won't be the worst thing if non Jewish religions take, maybe they'll corrupt them. Maybe they'll adulterate them, but basically it will help them become more moral, it will help them become more civil, it will help them become more monotheistic, they'll be good Christians, they'll be good Muslims, rather than being voodoo-worshipping, mushroom-eating, blood-sucking, head-decapitating, tree-worshipping, crazy. One to be rational, scientific, civil society. One day there'll be Christians living in Tina, you know, buying flowers in the market, celebrating uh, uh, St. Valentine's Day, whatever, rather than killing each other's daughters and raping each other's women, a more civil way for them to live. And then there's a separate part of Torah that I have to protect to the Jewish people, because that's going to be their code of survival. Because every single Jew will be studying it, every single Jew will be practicing it, and that's why it's usher to teach Torah Shabbat to a Gentile. It's mutter to teach Torah Shabbat to a Gentile. It's usher to teach Torah Shabbat to a Gentile. And it doesn't mean that if you're in college and someone asks you, oh, by the way, you know, what is track, what is uh, this Talmud thing called? And 
you know, a lot of share anecdotal information. But if a guy one second comes up and says, please teach me methodologically how to go through Torah Shabbat, who is Rebbe, and what's a Mishnah, what's a Tana, what's an Amara, what's... It's awesome. It's other to methodologically, again, today in the days of the internet, right? If I'm writing a shiur on the internet, I can't control it. Anyone can pick it up, but I'm not teaching a dentist. But a dentist would come and say, I'm paying you a private lesson and take me through shots, teach me the brisket derech. It would be usher for me to do it. Because Torah Shabbat is this international document. Torah Shabbat is designated specifically to our people. That's why it's called a bris. The second reason it's called a bris, and the reason that it's introduced now is because it is a bris. Hashem says, you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back, like every bris. You follow this, I promise you, you'll survive. If you don't follow this, you won't survive. And this is, Rabbi Tal would always tell us why any, the longest lasting shirim in communities were always Gemara shirim. They always tell us, yeah, Tanakh shirim gets started, it fizzle out, but somehow Gemara shirim tend to last. Now, why I think this is so important, and many of you will make Aliyah, and those of you who don't make Aliyah, you'll still be very connected to this country. It's hard because I think for many people, Gullus is seen as a backwards, dark period where we have to be embarrassed and we're so vulnerable and powerless. And now that we are the proud, mighty Jews, we're not the rabbinic Jews, we're the Israeli Jews who can defend ourselves. And a lot of people have a hard time tapping into that Masara of Torah And that's part of what makes this whole... I'm very, very, very skeptical. I've told you before. I love the fact that we're learning Tanakh again. I think it's open pathways. <laughs> that haven't been opened before, and I think it's important. But under every revolution, March is a danger under the cover of that revolution. Just ask the French Revolution. So, and when you undergo a revolution, you have to be careful. What are the demons that advance under the cover of the revolution that we're not aware of? Like, for example, what are the dangers of the revolution of women learning Torah? Right? You can answer that question. Me. I know what they are. I'm not going to share them with you, but I know what they are. There's certain dangers. Classic roles of women, classic roles of marriage. How, how can we fit new opportunities into traditional models? They're not simple. And, and, and you guys have to be very, because you're generation one, generation two of this revolution, be very, very careful to get it right. Because revolutions always dismantle the old system if they're not taken carefully, rather than refreshing them and improving them. So the same thing with Tanakh teaching. Okay, uh, Is Tanakh going to replace Gemara? Is Tanakh going to lead to people scoring Chazal? Then that's that. That's a miscarriage of Torah. That that then uh, no no one should open up a Tanakh if that's going to happen, and especially in Eretz Yisrael because it's hotwired to this whole historical dichotomy between the modern state of Israel and the previous Galus Jew and the Yudi Galuti. And you'll see this on Twitter and Yudi Eretz Yisraeli and Yudi Shel Busha, Yudi Shel Gvura, Yudi Shel Rabbanim, Yudi Shel Agula, and it's this whole network of dichotomization and binaryism between what's right and what's wrong and what's shameful and what's prideful. And then say, okay, we found new ways to study HaKadosh Baruch Hu, whether it's land, whether it's nationalism, whether it's Tanakh, and how can we graft them onto all this powerful, powerful pride and activity that allowed us to survive for 2,000 years and create a larger self and a larger whole. So it's a very important message and, and the bris element that Torah Shabbat has allowed us to survive and what you said before, that halacha couldn't handle the pluralism. And it doesn't mean that halacha is less authentic. It just means it's in a different phase. Remember, just I'll tell you one more story to answer your question. Okay, I was once in Los Angeles. Okay, we didn't have anyone from Los Angeles, did we? Oh, you can tell me. I was in Los Angeles 20 years ago. And um, 
It was after they asked the rabbi. After lunch, we had a communal uh, lunch, asked the rabbi. So I sat in front of this group of people. There was always one wise guy at every community. It was Parshas Vayetze. And he said, Rabbi, did Yaakov kiss Rachel? So what's he doing? This is an obvious setup. If I say yes, then why can't my son kiss his girlfriend? If I say no, then I'm being intellectually dishonest. I, I saw the trap a mile away. Like I, this is my first word. <laughs> he said, Rabbi, did Yaakov kiss Rachel? I said, let me talk to you about Jewish history. The, the, the best way is always to deflect and to go to something else entirely and then they forget about it. But anyone tends to forget about it. So you ever do that or not? What? You ever do that or not? <laughs> you never know. <laughs> no, what it really is is false. I told you this in the beginning of the year. Ravaran, we do it all the time. And I do it often with, with conversations. I want you to realize that the overarching values that build your system of belief and of experience are far more important than what you're going to say in a specific question. And therefore, let's go panorama. Let's discuss the issues that are at stake, because those issues are going to influence every single part of your life. And then in this case, like when I told you the Ravaran piece about Akiva, he spent 99% of the article discussing morality and interactions between morality and divine code and your Ashamayim. And now, how do you solve Avram and Haramoria? Okay, this is a solution. But Avram and Haramoria was one second. All these values shape your entire experience, your entire life. And rather than being hyper-focused on, well, most people get hyper-focused on the question and they ignore the framework and the context. I can't stress this enough to you. What Part of what we're trying to give you is contextual thinking. Take five steps back before you address the issue. All those values are far more important than whatever the issue is. Okay, so you may decide that that combination of values will lead to the following conclusion about the issues. And I may decide that the same combination of values should lead to a different conclusion about the issue. But the value is more important than the issue. And let's stop bickering about what we'll say. Okay, so I respect your position, you respect my position, as long as they're hewn like a rock from the same value system. So I told them the following. I said, look, there are four chapters of Jewish history. I told you this before. Divide Jewish history into four phases. The first phase is the first 2,400, 448 years we call pre Sinai. Human history was confusing. A few people understood Hashem, but there was a mass revelation. But a few people who founded a family and then became a nation were able to find Hashem through nature, through morality, through Kabbalah, whatever. 2448, period of revelation. That lasts about, let's say, 1,300 years. 2448, 1,300 years, the golden era of Jewish supernaturalism, prophecy, revelation, sovereignty, mikdash, monarchy, midbar, first base of mikdash, second base of mikdash, shoftim, malachim, taking us all the way to the second base of mikdash destruction. Second base of mikdash destroyed 70 AD, 2,000 years of the rabbinic tradition. 2,000 years, we have no prophecy, no mikdash, no sovereignty. What are we? We are people that shrink into the base medrash and create this incredible dynamo of Jewish experience centered on the base medrash, centered on tefillah, that's that third period. Now we're entering the fourth period, which we call the period of redemption. And what I'm trying to give you is see Judaism as a continuous flow rather than one period replacing the other period. You want to be, you want to be in touch with all four periods and see the redemptive era as a culmination rather than a displacement. So I said, you know what? After I, I talked to them about the four periods, it's, it's probably true that Yaakov kissed Rachel. Let's face it, that Torah says that Torah's not going to lie to us. Because in that period, it was totally appropriate for a single man to kiss a single woman because there are laws of sexuality, there are more sexuality, totally different. But at a certain point, in that third period, called the rabbinic period, the rabbis assessed the modes of sexuality and what was appropriate, what was not, and they made an iser for men and women to have any contact that is bordering on sexual, without arguing about whether the kiss is sexual or not, but anything that would be seen as a sign of affection. 
Okay, so Yaakov could have kissed Rachel in a totally legitimate way, but I don't live in Yaakov's period. I live in the fourth period of history, and for me, my experience has to be informed by the totality of all those periods, and most importantly, by the period that's most proximate to me. So most of my, and you'll see a lot of people who try to, we talked about leapfrogging the Shulchan Aruch to go back to pre-Shulchan Aruch, you'll find people that will leapfrog the entire system of Shas, say, well, I'm going to fashion my life like Avram Avinu. I'm going to fashion my life like Yosef HaTzadik. It's intellectually humiliating, because first of all, these are sandal-wearing, goat-herding people that have no clue what they said. They lived in a totally different time. I'm going to be like Avram Avinu. Like, it's not even a religiously immoral statement. It's just intellectually embarrassing. What are you saying? You, you, know, you know what you're saying? First, tell me, what does that mean? You want to live your life like Avram Avinu. What you want to do is you want to follow our Masara, and now that we're closer to Avram Avinu, because we're living in his land, how can I add to it? How can I entrench it, intensify it, augment it, broaden it? Now, are there going to be some differences at the margin now that we're living back in Eretz Yisrael? Of course. It doesn't mean that everything you did in England for 300 years, now that you're back in Eretz Yisrael, is going to be maintained. But the core and kernel of halacha has to be strictly, strictly protected. I think that's, in the end of the day, what these institutions are trying to give you. Everything we're doing are more or less consistent with everything your grandparents did before you started to learn, before when we were able to learn. We're, we're strict about halacha, and we, we, don't make, we don't play games with, uh, with, with Shemir's mitzvot, and we daven based on Zmanit Tfilos, and we follow the Shulchan Aruch. Okay, now that we're in a new period, where there's a new period for opportunities for women to learn, or a new period to learn parts of Torah that we hadn't learned before, or a new period to express our Vodas Hashem by building settlements, or a new period about how we relate to Jews who are no longer... These are areas that our grandparents didn't wrestle with, and there are added elements to our religious identity, but they can be added. And the point is, when you add, you, you, you deepen far more than when you replace. And when you're young, it sometimes seems like it's one versus the other. And quite frankly, that's why you need role models who show you it's not that way. And I had great role models. They were able to encompass everything that our tradition held and excel in that and then add elements to it. And they showed me, you know what, they're not mutually exclusive. They can all be brought under one roof. And you need people like that to show you they may seem like they're mutually exclusive, but they can be synthesized. You can be the most pious follower of the Shulchan Aruch and then go to a Tanakh Shia rabbi, Yoni goes to the second. And you can be the most dedicated to the Nida and at the same time um, uh, come to Mikdoros and study William Gunn. Or to say it differently, will you be able to put this? There are many, many grandparents of yours, your Bubbies and Zadies have front row seats in Olam Haba, your Bubbies in particular, and they were illiterate ignoramuses who never opened the Sefer. And they spent their whole life saying to Hillam, saying words they hardly knew what they were saying. And you know what? They lived very, very pious lives. And I wish that same piety on you. So how can you take that piety and live it and feel it, and then say, okay, now we're going to give it a new expression. My new expression is going to be, my piety will not just be through Tehillim, maybe not through Tehillim, but by understanding a Tosfos, or understanding a Shir, or understanding a Mishnah Now for me, there are opportunities. Rather than say, oh, they were all Neanderthal cave women who just mumble-jumble, hocus-pocus, and you know, I'm the enlightened one. It's called generationism, where you feel like your generation is superior to past generations, and that is an intellectual trap that will, that will um, confuse anyone. It's not just a Jewish phenomenon, it's a general phenomenon. Everyone feels that because we are advancing technologically and scientifically and economically, that we're also advancing culturally and experientially, and it's not true. There are advances in certain objective metrics of human experience. We have more money, 
less starvation, more political liberty, better technological opportunity. So there are five or six sectors in which there's a clear advance. But it doesn't mean that our morality and our culture, nor our marriages, right? Our marriages are predicated on sexual interaction, romantic love, and soulmates, and their marriages are financial mergers. Their sexuality is very different from ours. So, oh, they were sub-animal procreationists who just had no interest. No, they had a certain type of marriage, and if you found yourself being raised in that framework, you'd have had a healthy marriage, because you're expecting, just like in Haredi circles, the divorce rate isn't higher than it is in our circles, because the expectations and the cultural milieu is different. What do you mean? I can't imagine getting married to a man I met twice and living with that person. Because your whole expectation, right? Your children are going to laugh at the fact that you held the phone in your hand rather than the hologram that built this present. You hold the phone when you're crazy. Yeah. Look at the phones we used to use in our day. So you'll be laughed at in the same way you're laughing at previous generations. So stop laughing and just saying, this is our world. I want to excel within my world. I'm not going to make judgments about different worlds. And I want to see how can I take that kernel of their experience and recreate it, but give it a different external shell, give it a different set of clothing. Right? I don't dress the way my grandfather dressed in his yeshiva Slobodka. I would hope that if I went back in the time machine, I could fit into Slobodka really well. I'll just change my clothing and say, you know, okay, let's learn the next Gemara, and let me tell you what's happening in the 21st century, and how I'm trying to help wrestle with those new issues. And they'll tell me, okay, that's interesting. You know what? It sounds like something I would project if I were to know about those issues coming about. Yes? Um, I have a question. I know I'm not going to get an answer, but I want to ask you anyway. Okay. Um, you mentioned like, I don't know, maybe half an hour ago about um, that you see dangers with women learning. And I know there's probably people here who don't want to hear the answers, but I like, I, I want to know. I don't care if I don't like the answer. Look, uh, Kurdish Barco made men and women different. And that is irrefutable. And it's in basic biology and psychology and sexuality. Men and women are different. And there's a certain, and there's a maternal instinct that Hashem implanted within women. It's strong in some women, but in other women, it's absolutely crucial for raising children in ways that men, men can't replicate. And if that skill erodes, or that skill isn't expressed well enough, then children are going to suffer. Um, I'll, I'll give you a non-judgmental statement. Okay? I was speaking to a rabbi a couple of weeks ago. This isn't judgmental, because he was just assessing. And he said he has a very hard time scheduling events on Shabbos. Why? Because it used to be that, this is not just men, I'm just, I'm just setting up the issue. How we deal with it, I don't know. It used to be that women stayed home for Shabbos, and men came to shul, and the communal activities essentially surrounded the men, and they built strong communal bonds because everyone was together in these activities. And of course, what he didn't say is that those bonds then benefited women as well, because if a strong community is going to benefit everyone in the community. He says, Today, in 2020, he's the nicest guy in the world. He's, he's, he, if you hear, he says, most feminist rabbi, he just said, what happens on Shabbos? The men get up early, the daven masikin, and then the women go to daven, and there's no time that I can schedule any events because everyone's coming to shul. So there's no, men aren't free, so it's hard for me to build a community. Now, that's a non-judgmental statement, and it's just how all of a sudden the goalposts have shifted because now men are davening early, then women are coming, and the women want to learn, the men want to learn. So... We have to think about how we can recreate some of the marriages, right? It was obvious, right? What makes Haredi marriages so successful? Because there are clear roles. In the Haredi world, men are not expected to participate in raising children at all. It's all upon the women. And in some Haredi circles, men are not even expected to earn a living. It's all upon the women. That's a very, very hard life. But you'd be surprised. So much of marriage is miscommunication, right? The key to any relationship is good communication. 
and especially need good communication when you misunderstand each other. And most misunderstandings in marriage don't come from the fact the roast beef is burnt or the chicken isn't tasty. It's, you know, I expected you to do this and you didn't do it. So the more that you can define roles in life, the easier it is to avoid uh, the disagreements and, and, and the need for communication. So in the Haredi world, there's less misunderstanding because the roles are so sharply and clearly defined in a way that many people say, I don't I want that, it's not my world. But all of a sudden, even in our world where there used to be implicit division of roles and men go to minion and women don't go to minion and men carry the torch of Tom and women don't, it's definitely, I've seen families where there's a lot of tension between men and women because of that, because the roles aren't defined. So I, I'm, Baruch Hashem, I have a beautiful marriage. I just There's a lot to talk about. And just to close our eyes and put our heads in the sand and say, hey, we're learning, it's great, let's move ahead. There are a lot of things to think about and a lot of people that could be suffering if we're not able to build this thing the right way. And building anything the right way doesn't mean breaking down the old order. It means adding a new bridge or adding new spirit or finding ways to keep what we've established. That should be your, your calling card for change in life. Try to inspire old institutions and conventions with new spirit and opportunities rather than replacing it. It's always cool to be a revolutionary and break things down and build from scratch. You feel good about it. It speaks to your ego. You're the rebel. You're the one that knows it all. You're the omniscient rebel. And that's not, that's not the path to success. The path to success is to work within the system, within the institution, and find new ways. And very often, that's progress by inches. I just spoke about this last Shabbos in Gush. Last Shabbos in Gush, we had a special Shabbos for our donors. So like 20, 30 donors came. They're big people who have given a lot of money. They're all alumni of Yeshiva. I was asked to speak like what we stand for. What, what, what are the things that make our Yeshiva and our institution, how have we applied it to life? And one of the things I said is, I want to tell you, I was in Migdala, I spoke about Migdala, I was in Migdala, she was one of the people there, was like their sister, was like one of the first Migdala girls. And so I remember we started Migdala, it was one caravan, and it was all the way down there on, near the Nefet. One caravan in one, one class, it was like, oh, there's a place to dive in, two caravans, I remember, SDI, and like three of us. No loud statements, no big flag racing. We didn't make bold announcements. We didn't say we're changing the course of the free world. <laughs> we're changing women's learning forever. And it's going to be night and day. And a new era is upon us. And out with the old. It's just like, yeah, let's, let's start teaching Torah in a very, very quiet way. They put facts on the ground and more facts on the ground and more facts on the ground. I said part of what I think our Rosh Hashiva taught us is do things quietly. No big announcements. No, well, one of the things that bothers me about these reforms, if you're following them, most of the reforms, if you inspect them pound for pound, they're pretty necessary because the Supreme Court in the 90s overextended itself and now they're trying to reestablish. But the way it's being done is just very loud and very noisy and very us and just, if, if I had, let's say, been asked to, to create those reforms, let's plan when and how. Let's, what's, the, what's the reform that's least likely to raise public awareness and public opposition? Let's introduce that. Let's gain some traction. Let's rather than a lot of try to avoid the noise, try to avoid the, I'm writing articles and I'm announcing a new era, those things fizzle very, very quickly. Real changes day to day in quiet. And so that's, I think, part of the legacy. And I looked around the table and said, you guys are all doing that in your lives because you're all students of yeshiva. And I know the things, the projects you're involved in without big announcements, without big noise. So noise is very exciting, but it, it doesn't create reality. Reality is substance and facts in the ground. Yes? Touch a lot of interesting ideas. Clarifying question about what you were talking about for like long time before. You only mean like lunches, right? You also mean like yeah, because like 
But women, but also just like yeah, years ago from the shtetl, like wasn't sure, wasn't sure. learning. I mean, practice and thought. Correct. I, I thought I, I thought I made that clear, right? When the guy comes to town to Shabbos, doesn't mean Muslim is having Shabbos. He says Shabbos. I can't go anywhere. Please help me find a place to stay. Akash is what should I do? Correct. And and lumbers also obviously lumbers or not just lumbers but anything with Russian. Like I had attracted the best minds, so the best minds who typically were leading society were engaged. That's the beauty of of uh, Dafyami, where Mayor Shapiro in the twenties said, "Let's try to." organize this so that we're literally on the same page, not like in theory on the same page. We're literally, everyone, we can get on a plane. Remember, Dafyomi is because of the changes in transportation. The Jewish world became a lot smaller after railroads and airplanes were introduced. When you go back 500 years, you never saw a Jew that lived 30 miles beyond you. But now, Jews in England are traveling on trains to Poland, traveling on trains to Germany, traveling on trains to Russia, boats, planes. So now Jews are actually coming into contact with one another and let's create a common language, not just theoretically, but like everyone's learning the same Dafinazer or Dafinay. It's a fascinating, fascinating change. And of course, the internet is the kerosene on that fire. Right? You never saw the internet coming. You imagine me seeing the internet would be a no-brainer. Because Dafinay and the internet are tailor-made for each other. Okay. Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Next week's in Pesach. Okay, everyone recover for Purim. Kiddushim of Biurim for anyone who wants. Whoever can make it through one page gets chalas. Including me, yes. Medical advice in England. Yes. Medical advice in England is that mother can sleep here as long as she wants.